We are working through a series going through the Gospel of Matthew, and this spring we're focusing on chapters 8 and 9, and the big idea of Matthew 8 and 9 is this, Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes to us. This is the amazing truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter where you've been, what's been done to you, what you've done, what your story is, what your economic background is, does not matter. Jesus comes to you. Jesus comes to all people without distinction. And last week we saw that Jesus had the audacity to eat with tax collectors and sinners. How many of you are thankful that our God eats with tax collectors and sinners? Right? The religious leaders, they weren't a fan of that. Uh, They thought their Messiah should be more religious than that, should be more uh, esteemed than that, should be more sophisticated than to eat with tax collectors and sinners. But our God enters into our mess and dines with the social outcasts, the broken, messed up, jacked up, sinful people. That's our God. And we continue this week looking at the beautiful truth that absolutely Jesus comes to us. And I want to preface this week's passage. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. I want to preface this week's passage by saying this. uh, These are four short verses with massive implications. Right? Four short verses with massive implications. Uh, You're essentially going to get two sermons for the price of one this week. I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Okay, because in four verses, Jesus is going to teach very practically on the spiritual discipline of fasting. He's going to answer a question about fasting. But then Jesus is going to use this question on fasting to do what he often does and springboard into a bigger theological conversation on the nature of the new covenant that he came to establish. So here's what I'm saying. We're going to start practical and we're going to end theological. We're going to wade into the deep end of the pool a little bit by the end of the day, uh, so to speak. But I want to encourage you with this. Um, I, I think every follower of Jesus tends to approach their faith either more practically or more theologically. And, and that's okay. That's, that's good. But I want to challenge you this morning, uh, those of you that take a more theological, intellectual approach to the faith, not to neglect the practical aspects and maybe for those of you that hold to a simple faith, you're, you're practical, um, man, that's great. But I also want to encourage you to stretch yourself theologically through the teaching of Jesus this morning as well. Uh, Jesus was the greatest teacher to ever live. He taught truths of the kingdom of God, both practically and theologically. To be biblical, we need both. And so this morning in four short verses, Jesus is going to unpack massive truths about the nature of the kingdom of God and the new covenant that he came to establish. So I want you to read with me these four verses, beginning Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, says this, uh, Then the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? Some of your translations will say fast often or much. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed." But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are 
preserved. If you're taking notes, here's the big idea. Here's the summary that we're going to unpack this morning. It is this. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. Maybe as I say that, that's good news for some of you right away. But maybe for others, you don't even quite know what that means, what that looks like. We're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this truth. And my prayer is this, that for everyone in this room, by the end of our time together this morning, that the fact that we live under the new covenant with Christ as our king would be good news for you. Right When we read scripture, we don't want to just be informed by the words and the message that we read. We want to be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And so I pray today that uh, this summary, this idea would be good news for you, would be good news to your heart. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our King. In the first two verses, Jesus addresses uh, fasting, proper and improper Fasting. Okay, Jesus is uh, sharing a meal with the tax collectors and sinners, and man, this guy just does not get left alone. Like, can't share a meal without being bothered. The disciples of John, the Baptist, come to Jesus and his disciples as they're sharing a meal, and they ask a practical question Why do we and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, why do we fast often? But your followers, Jesus, do not fast often. Here's what's going on we have Three religious groups in verse 14 with three different views on fasting. How many know that religious people tend to have a lot of different opinions about a lot of things? Uh, Some things just don't change. Some things just don't change. Uh, Three groups with three different views of fasting. We have the disciples of John. You remember some months ago we were in Matthew chapter 3 and we learned about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is radical. And this guy's crazy. Uh, He lived in the wilderness and in the desert for much of his life. We know from Matthew chapter 3 that he wore a garment of camel's hair with a big leather belt around his waist. What was his choice of diet? Locusts and honey. We're not talking little locusts. We're talking Palestinian bona fide locusts. Right? This guy's crazy. And, And he comes out to be the forerunner of... Jesus the Messiah and his message is, repent, you are sinful, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist had his disciples and his followers, just as Jesus had his disciples and his followers, and we know that his disciples would have fasted often, right? John the Baptist subscribed to a a way of life called asceticism, and this is very simply the uh, putting off of and rejecting physical pleasure for spiritual gain. And so they were a little bit like extremists. Uh, They would probably go days on end without eating or drinking. Um, They would wear minimalistic clothing, live in minimalistic homes for the sake of spiritual uh, closeness with God. So everyone was fasting less than the disciples of John. So they ask, why, Jesus, are your followers not fasting as much as we do? Then they bring the Pharisees into the equation. These were the religious elite of the day, the religious leaders. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast? The Pharisees would have been excellent Jews, and so they would have uh, fasted at least once a year, according to Levitical law, but they also added some tradition to it, and they would have fasted on Mondays and Thursdays every week. Okay, so they're fasting quite a bit. 
These are the Pharisees, and then you have the disciples of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus were good Jews. Uh, They would have fasted at least once a year, and we know that Jesus didn't reject fasting altogether um, because we have record of him fasting. Right, so the disciples of Jesus, they, they fasted, but not as much as other religious groups thought they should have. Right, they, they weren't appeasing the traditions and the burdens of these other religious sects. Right, they weren't doing it as much as maybe they thought they should have. And so I want to just take a moment to unpack what is biblical fasting. We have all these views, all these conflicting opinions and traditions and laws. And So what is the biblical view of fasting? Let me give you a very practical working definition of fasting. Uh, Fasting is the abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. That's the simplest definition. Abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Right? It's it's to express closeness and and longing and desire for relationship with God. Uh, It could be said this way. Uh, Fasting is willingly saying, I'm going to hunger physically because I hunger for closeness with God spiritually. Okay, I hunger physically because I hunger spiritually for closeness with God. There are three kinds of uh, fasts in the Bible. Uh, first, we have the normal fast. This is the one that Jesus and his disciples would have done most frequently. In Luke chapter 4, uh, we read that Jesus, before he begins his public ministry, uh, for 40 days ate no food and was really hungry. I mean, you know, 40 days without food you're going to be hungry. Man, 40 minutes without food. I hunger and I thirst, right? So 40 days uh, without food. This was practical for for Jesus and his followers. We also have uh, an absolute fast. This is the extreme uh, end of fasting. This is no food and no water for an extended period of time. You say, who on earth would do that? Of course, the Apostle Paul would do that. Acts chapter 9, verse 9, the Apostle Paul is uh, radically converted to Christianity uh, as one who was on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. Man, Jesus encounters him. Paul wasn't looking for God, wasn't searching for God, was breathing threats against God, and Jesus encounters him. He's blinded for a season of time. And what does he do? He drinks no water, he eats no food, for three days. Don't do this for more than like three days, by the way. Okay, this is the absolute fast. And then we have a partial fast. Right, this is a very common popular fast even today in, in many Christian circles. Uh, this is abstaining from maybe certain food groups for a season of time or uh, putting off um, a regular habit or pleasure that you have uh, to seek closeness and intimacy with God. In Daniel chapter 10, we learned that Daniel after receiving a wild vision. Um, If you've read the last six chapters of Daniel, you're probably like, what just happened? Right, and so Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 receives this vision from God, is trying to discern the meaning, doesn't know what it means, and so he eats no meat, he abstains from delicacies, and he drinks no wine for, I believe it was three weeks. Why? Because he wanted to pursue closeness with God for a season. This is the partial fast. So we know that Jesus' disciples, they, they fasted. 
but not as much as the religious leaders and the religious elite of the day uh, thought they should have. So Jesus addresses this question head on in verse 15. He answers the question on fasting. He says this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, Jesus does what he often does. He answers the question with a question. And he uses this analogy, this word picture, of a bridegroom and a wedding celebration. Okay, it was Jewish practice for, after the wedding ceremony, the bridegroom and the bride to remain with the wedding guests for days at a time, three, four, five days at a time. And so Jesus uses this illustration to answer the question on fasting by, by saying, look, the, the bridegroom, he's referring to himself as the bridegroom, he says, the bridegroom is with his bride as we speak. The reason my disciples don't fast is because there's no occasion for sorrow at this point in my ministry. Right? Jesus is addressing the fact that fasting is often associated not with joy but with sorrow. Fasting is a somber and serious uh, religious practice for Jews and Christians alike. Right? Fasting is one of the deepest expressions of longing for what is not yet that Christians can practice. And so weddings are not an occasion for sorrow and somber attitudes. Weddings are an occasion for joy. And Jesus says the bridegroom is with them. We're in the wedding celebration as we speak. My disciples don't fast because they have no reason to long for what is not Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, my disciples don't fast because God is in their midst. I I need you to catch this. This is nothing short of a claim to deity. This is Jesus saying he is God in so many words. One of the greatest Old Testament analogies and word pictures that God gives uh, for his people to relate to him is He's the bridegroom of his people. He is the husband of his people. And so Jesus says, look, the bridegroom, God is in my disciples' midst, and so they don't fast often because they have nothing to long for. In this period of time, man, the bridegroom's here. We're not going to weep at the wedding because we're here to celebrate the ministry that I've come to establish. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Of course not. But then he says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. Jesus is looking ahead, and he's referring to the time between his first coming and his second coming. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends after uh, his crucifixion and resurrection and 40 days appearing to many uh, witnesses. He ascends into heaven, and then begins the church era. This is the era in which we currently live today. The hope of the Christian is awaiting the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus was foreshadowing this. He says, in that period of time, my disciples will fast. Why? Because Jesus was bodily taken away. And so we fast today because we long 
for relationship and closeness with God in this broken world. Today we fast because we await the second coming of Christ where he will come and establish the kingdom of God in its fullness and he will reign and rule over all creation. Every knee will bow, every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord and he will make all things new. He'll do away with all the sin in the world. Like That's what we look forward to, the second coming of Christ and so we fast to express that hunger. I want to give you five principles very briefly for fasting because I want this to be a practice This should be a normal practice in the life of the Christian. Right, if we're honest for a moment, uh, fasting is really intimidating. Like, can we agree with that? Right, okay, I can read my Bible, I can pray, I can love my wife, I can host a life group, but like fasting from food for days at a time, that's really intense and really intimidating. That's, That's for the elite Christians, right? No, actually, uh, as I was studying this week, I found that fasting is mentioned more times in the Bible than baptism. 77 times fasting is mentioned, 75 times baptism is mentioned. I think the clue is this, fasting is really significant in this period of time as we await and we long for the return of Christ. Five principles for biblical fasting. I want these to be practical, and so I pray this helps you. Uh, Fasting is a command and an invitation. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, on the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world, Jesus teaches on fasting. And he doesn't say, if you decide to fast, do it this way. What does he say? He says, when you fast. It's a command. It's it's an expectation for Jesus' followers to fast. But it's also an invitation Jesus didn't come to tie up heavy burdens on his people. He came to carry the burden for his people. So when he invites people into fasting, he does it for his glory and our good. It is good to fast and experience longing and closeness with God. Second principle, uh, fasting is to be done from grace, not for grace. It's to be done from grace, not for grace. Uh, here's what I'm saying. Fasting does not score you points to your spiritual account in heaven. Right? It it doesn't make you any more or any less right with God. Why? Because Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God so that none may boast. The moment we start fasting, the moment we start reading our Bibles, the moment we start praying, the moment we start loving one another so that God will be more pleased with us, is the moment we fall into the trap of religiosity. So we fast from grace. We get to fast because of what Christ did for us. It's from grace, not for grace. Third, uh, this one convicts me. Uh, Don't make your style someone else's standard. Right When it comes to reading the Bible and praying and, and fasting in these spiritual disciplines... Don't make your preferences, your style, someone else's standard. We call this Phariseeism. If you've ever been called a Pharisee, that's not someone complimenting your intellectual capabilities. That's their way of saying you are being a religious bigot. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus addresses this point pointedly. He gives seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, he says the Pharisees 
tie up burdens that they themselves are not willing to carry and make other people carry them. The Pharisees made their style, their preference, their tradition, someone else's standard. Let me say this. It is only God's word, God's word and God's word alone, that is binding on the Christian. It is only God's word. Show me in the Bible where your preference comes from, and then I will be accountable to it. It's God's law, not the tradition of religion, that is binding on the Christian. And so don't make your style someone else's standard. The fourth point, uh, practical principle for fasting. Fasting intensifies prayer. This is true in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas are at the church, and the, the Christians gather around Paul and Barnabas, and they pray over them, and they fast for some period of time, and then they send them out to begin the greatest missionary journey in the first century of the church. Fasting always accompanies and intensifies prayer, and fifthly, the principle is this, uh, fast for a purpose. This is really practical because if you're not fasting for a purpose, if you're not fasting perhaps for a physical healing or for something to break in your uh, finances or for um, maybe your own personal uh, spiritual zeal and vitality, then let's be honest, when day two comes around and you're starving and you have no purpose, you're like, I'm going to break open the bag of Cheez-Its. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? You got to have a purpose. You got to have a purpose, a, a spiritual purpose that outweighs the physical hunger you feel. And so fast for a purpose. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel fasted for a purpose. He wanted to discern the vision that God gave him, and so he fasted for three weeks. Okay, we're going to move now. We're going to follow Jesus' teaching in the last two verses of this passage and look uh, at the springboard from fasting into a bigger conversation on the era in which Jesus came to minister. We're going to look at the Old and New Covenants. And my goodness, do we have to hurry. How are we doing? Are we doing okay? Okay, good. We, we, we have some ground to cover, but uh, this is good. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. Here's how Jesus teaches on the new covenant. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Why? Because the patch tears away from the garment and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Uh, what's going on? Here's what I need you to know. Christ did not come to repair or reform the old ways of Judaism. He came to establish the new covenant altogether. Jesus did not come to reform the old covenant. He came to establish the new covenant. And Jesus uses two word pictures, two analogies to illustrate this point. He first talks about the unshrunk or new cloth patched onto an old garment. He says, don't do this. Why? Because if you put unshrunk cloth on an old garment, when you go to wash that garment, throw it in the dryer, if you will, what's going to happen? It's going to shrink as it dries. And so it's going to tear the garment even worse than before you put the patch on. Uh, the new cloth cannot fit well onto the old garment. Jesus uses a second analogy. He talks about the Fresh and new wine put into old wineskins. Uh, the process in 
New Testament era Palestine for making wine was pretty simple. They would press grapes and store the juice in these like malleable skins. They're kind of gross if you want to Google search an image, frankly. But they'd be like animal skins and like pouches that would hold this wine. And as the new wine in the wineskin ferments over a period of some weeks and months, gases would release and it would cause the buildup of pressure in the wineskins. If you put the new wine into an old wineskin, the wineskin would be brittle and it would eventually burst. It couldn't hold up to the pressure. But you put the new wine into what? Into new wineskins. It's malleable. It's not hardened by the sun yet. And it would be able to expand with the expanding new wine. Jesus saying, the kingdom of God, the covenant that I came to establish, the ministry of my life is like this unshrunk cloth and like this new wine. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to reform the old ways of Judaism. I didn't come to reform or repair the old covenant. He said, I came to establish something new altogether. He says, the old practices will not work in the new covenant I'm establishing. This is the ministry of Christ. The new covenant is not like the old. Your Bibles are divided into Old Testament and New Testament. Literally, that means Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jesus, God dealt with his people one way in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Jesus came in the fullness of time to establish the New Covenant, the new way of God dealing with his, with his people. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, you can read about this new covenant. This was promised some five centuries before Jesus came to establish it. And this is what God says of this new covenant. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I need you to catch this, verse 32. It is not like the covenant I made with their fathers. The covenant Jesus came to establish is not like the old covenant. It's new altogether. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. Jesus didn't come to repair the old covenant. He came to establish the new covenant. My prayer is that you would see this as, as good news. I'm going to take the next few moments to help you see how much better in every way the new covenant that Jesus came to establish is in comparison to the old. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. And so one question I get asked a lot as a pastor is, as Christians in the new covenant, what's our relationship with the old? Right? What do we make of the old Testament, what do we make of the old covenant? How do we relate to the law? What do we do with these feasts and with these ceremonies and with these ritual washings? And What do we do with all that now that Jesus came and established the new? And I want to say this. We believe wholeheartedly as followers of Jesus that Jesus did not abolish the old covenant. What did he do? He fulfilled it. Jesus did not abolish the old covenant, Matthew 5, chapter 17, but uh, he, he, he fulfilled it. And with the new covenant comes new practices. 
Christ fulfilled the law, and now we live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. And so what's our relationship with the old covenant? What's our relationship to it? One question I might get is, why don't we offer sacrifices anymore? Well, because John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain once and for all. He is our great sacrifice. No longer do we have to offer sacrifices because Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. What's our relationship to the law? What do we make of the law, the old covenant law? In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that Christ became a curse for us under the law so that we might be free in his grace. We're not bound by the law because we have the law of the letter of the Spirit through Christ written on our hearts. Christ fulfilled the law for his people. Why don't we have a temple? Right? What, what happened to the temple? That's something interesting about the Christian religion is that, sure, we'll make pilgrimages to the Holy Land, but it's just to kind of see where Jesus walked. It's to see his, what we think is his tomb. We don't make the pilgrimage to the temple because Jesus is the temple. This is the point in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Jesus' body is the temple for the people of God. What do we make of the priesthood? Why don't we have the priesthood in place anymore? Why don't priests offer sacrifices on our behalf? Because in Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus is called not a priest, but the great high priest. In Paul's letter to First Timothy, Paul says that we have one mediator between God and man. That's the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. If you want a relationship with God the Father, go through our great high priest, the Son, Jesus Christ. And why don't we practice these ceremonial washings and ritual cleansings? Because the good news is that in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, By the work of Christ, our hearts have been sprinkled clean, and we've been washed and cleansed under the new covenant. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. My prayer for you today, my prayer for you all week has been that you would be set free from a spirit of religiosity, that you would be set free from the false teaching, the false gospel that says, I need to clean myself up before I come to Christ. The false gospel, the lies that we believe that say, I need to fast so many days a week so that God will be more pleased with me. The lie that says, I need to read my Bible more so that I can achieve grace from God. The lie that says, the Father could never accept me because, man, I am imperfect. 
Jesus came to establish the new covenant, and this new covenant is not like the old. Jesus came to set you free from the burden of the law, from the burden of works. Jesus came to live the life you could not live. Jesus came to die the death that we deserve to die as a penalty for breaking God's law and breaking God's heart. But then Jesus rose again victoriously by the power of God working in him to give new life under the new covenant for all who will place their faith and trust in him. This frees you from works of the law. This frees you from trying to please God because Christ has pleased God in our place. And so when we follow Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're given new hearts under the new covenant. We're given the spirit not just on us or around us, but in us so that we can be empowered to live a life of righteousness unto God. This is the good news of the new covenant. This is the good news of the work of Jesus. We live under the new covenant with Christ as our king. Would you close with me in prayer?